90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good, except for the fact I've been up since 4 o'clock, but that's okay. 4 a.m., not p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you were uh, on the road this week, right? Right, yeah. Uh, I just got back from LPSC, which is still totally going on. Uh, I was only there for, well, effectively a day, um, <laughs> which really stinks because it's a great conference. Um, but, yep, it's my kiddo's spring break, so... We cut our stay down there short. My student had a poster, and so I figured I could talk about some of the cool posters that we walked around and saw um, before his poster session, and he did a great job, and it was really fun. But there are some sad things at LPSC now. I haven't been in since 2011, I think, 2012. That was my last LPSC. Yeah. Yeah, 2011 was mine, so it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. There's no more free beer. Well, that's sad. It was real sad. There was nuts and popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> but the beer, uh, you would have died, John. You would have gone beerless. Um, $8 a can. Whoa. <laughs> and it probably was not even that good. No, it was good. That was the that was the microbrew. I could have got a Cor- uh, I could have got a Coors Light, but I was not going to pay $7 for a Coors Light. Mm, no. And you would have not thought it was good either because the only microbrews they had were IPAs, which was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of the IPAs. Yeah, I know. You're wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's what we've been doing, but we'll get into that. Um, have you done anything exciting since we last talked? Oh, you know, we're just uh, still in the the throes of moving Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so when this podcast is live uh, if anybody you know wants to move to the denver area and have a house that has a amazing basement workshop uh, the house will be live (laughs) (laughs) no i'm assuming none of the fun toys come with the amazing basement workshop no just the fact that there's an absurd amount of power (laughs) routed down there (laughs) <laughs> um, are you leaving behind all your um, dividing plastic wrap thingies? No, no. I've already taken those down at the advice of realtors that, you know, plastic strip doors like you see on a meat freezer don't give comfort <laughs> to prospective home buyers. I guess, especially if you didn't have any of your equipment down there and that's all they saw. <laughs> this is my serial killer lab. It's fine. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, that's, and actually it's funny, I was listening to the Microfab Engineering podcast. One of the hosts of that uh, has recently moved to the Denver area. And he said, well, you know, last weekend I ended up running like two 20-amp circuits to my basement to get uh-huh. enough power. Uh-huh. And you were like, like man, man, if you had just moved a little later. Exactly. You wouldn't have had to do any of the hard work. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, that's real stressful. I... Uh... I'm not going to lie. That probably keeps what keeps me from moving is just thinking about all the stuff you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah. So that's been, that's been fun and interesting and getting some exciting projects uh, queued up for as I transition to full time, all kinds of fun uh, sensor projects and doing some more circuit boards for folks. Uh, so if, if you do have some custom bespoke instrumentation needs, or some manufacturing needs. Uh, as of May, I'll be full time and ready to help. Oh, yeah, that's. Uh, I'll try to break some more equipment for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, or get some new students to break it. That's what will. That's what will actually happen. <laughs> Undergraduate workers. That's what you need. Yeah. No, no, it's really the grad students that mess everything up. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but anyway. So I do have a correction from last week's show, though. Yeah. We don't have to do this very often, right? We're usually so right about everything. <laughs> yes, as geologists are. That's right. <laughs> um, so the fun paper about tying ties in different ways was actually sent in by listener Ben, not listener Daryl. Sorry, so, Ben. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, even the best record-keeping systems sometimes go astray and they especially go astray when you're moving ah, 
<laughs> and when you don't have a record keeping system. <laughs> oh, just kidding. That's me. <laughs> I say, speak for yourself there. Yeah, that's right. I know. Yours is backed up 12 times on 5,000 different cloud types. I know. So, you know, everybody thinks I'm crazy for all my backups and makes fun of me like you do. I had a drive in my RAID die a couple of weeks ago. So I come home and there's a blinking red light. And sure enough, one of the two hard drives in that RAID had died. So everything would have been gone had it been a single hard drive. But then you turned to the RAID right next to it and said, good boy. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, I mean, I only, I mostly just do Dropbox and it's like the thought of my computer could fall into, you know, a lake and I'd walk away and be fine is so amazingly comforting. Well, I will refer people to our backup show where I say Dropbox is not a backup strategy, but we can, (sighs) we can debate that on another show. (laughs) I'm sure we will. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Dropbox and the 15... Um, you know, flash drives in my pocket. Does that count? <laughs> oh <No>. my! <laughs> oh, we're gonna have this backup show sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which is actually one of the things. Uh, you know, on the listener survey, a lot of folks said they liked some more of the tech topics, and they liked uh, more of the crossover shows. So we got Traitors. something in in the works there. <laughs> Traitors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and. Uh, we had a, a pretty good distribution on a lot of the other things. Some more requests for deep dives, maybe a few less conference shows, which this is not going to be. Yeah, no, it won't be. I am going to say a few things, but they're really funny, not, you know, science <laughs> Yeah, and we'll go over. We're still perusing all of the data that you all provided in that survey. Uh, some really interesting things that I think are going to help us make the show uh, even better. So thank you for filling that survey out. But, Shannon, tell us what other things you saw at LPSC. Well, so this is also sort of from the survey, because what I wanted to talk about was sort of the setup of the posters, because I know we talked a lot in the past. We haven't had a show sort of talking about how you, you know, set things up, like what makes a good graph, what makes good, you know, visual aids and stuff like that. But um, this was my student's first poster. And LPSC has a couple of links on their website. And for those of you who haven't listened in the last couple of weeks, LPSC is the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, and it goes on every um, every March in Houston. Well, in the woodlands, but, you know, <laughs> it's all Houston. the same. Exactly. <laughs> and this is the 50th anniversary, so that was really exciting. Um, but I wanted to bring some of those sort of techie topics to this because I made it a point to not only read the how to make a scientific poster, but also to just walk through, and this was really hard for me because I'm interested in all this stuff, and just look at the posters in terms of what caught my eye that wasn't like the science part, right? Just like which posters looked good and why. And I actually went through and like made a whole bunch of notes about this because there were some very interesting posters. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So what are some of the things that caught your eye? Uh, well, I, I always think it's funny because you always say how you try to do your um, color scheme like based on albums or something like that, right? right. Uh, there was one that was definitely based on old school Tron. <laughs> like. Oh, that's awesome. It was amazing. Like it had like the, the blue grids like going into the background and stuff. <laughs> it had like fabulous sort of like 80s, very pixelated type. It was amazing. I actually don't even remember what that poster was about. I just remember it looked super cool. Um, And then there were quite a few funny ones. And almost all the session names were also really hilarious. And I don't remember LPSE being this funny. It was super funny. (laughs) So, yeah. One of the posters, (laughs) which was great. It was just this picture of an asteroid, and it wasn't a very good picture of an asteroid. So I couldn't gather. It seemed like maybe they wrote their abstract hoping that they'd get better pictures, and then that didn't materialize. All right. Yeah, because what it wound up being was a big picture of this asteroid and then a blank spot with all of these impact craters. They were from Earth and a couple of other planets in the solar system were cut out. And then they had, like, the little night nighttime things you put over your eyes. <laughs> that was also pinned up there. And I read, and it said, pin the asteroid, or pin the, 
than the impact on the asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it said, it said, but seriously, at the bottom, and it, it basically said, you know, we didn't get the data we had expected. Most of the craters on this asteroid are probably simple craters, but here, you know, show us what you think they look like, <laughs> which I thought <laughs> was amazing. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that before. Crowdsourcing image analysis. It was yeah, it was fantastic. I tried to get my son to do it, and he he wouldn't do it. <laughs> but <laughs> um, and then the other one, which was a hilarious poster, and it's funny because you make this hilarious. But during the poster session, you couldn't even get near this poster because there were so many people talking about this. So while it was funny, a lot of good science probably happened during that couple of hours just because. There were so many people around it talking. And it, it was called Flomps and Blorps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had their own hashtags. <laughs> they even had those little ribbons, those obnoxious ribbons that go at the bottom of your name tag. For... So I saw on Twitter somebody that said <gasps> Team Flomp and yes. I didn't on their name tag and I didn't know what that was. Let me tell you. <laughs> so there was Team Flomp and Team Blorp. <laughs> and so it was talking about how if you take two um squishy objects essentially and if they impact each other what happens to them how do they get stuck together that's basically it and so like a flomp i may get this wrong i'm sorry i don't have my notes in front of me i'm pretty sure i'm correct though a flomp is two less squishy objects and then a blorp is two super super squishy objects and so what does that look like when you try to model what the resulting Thing is going to look like as it absorbs each other in whatever way so it's basically like a dynamics poster okay mm -hmm. so is this more elastic or more inelastic in terms of a collision then um well i from the modeling elastic but also i don't think they believe the models thank god <laughs> from reading okay. the poster so I think there's some other things that are happening that aren't being modeled correctly, which clearly was a hot topic for talking about that evening. Definitely. And, you know, you guess you get, uh, you get a creative title and some free ribbons and you'll get lots of people around there talking. It was crazy. There is so much traffic on Twitter about this LPSC. And there's like a New York Times, at least one, uh, science writer there because I saw constantly on Twitter I was like oh I just saw this thing at LPSC and then I'm looking I'm like oh no this person went to that same exact poster and talked to the people <laughs> and they're tweeting about it so there was a lot of LPSC traffic yeah mm -hmm. so that was those, those were mostly it obviously all the space ones always look cool because they always do these awesome black backgrounds and then they've got all these cool pictures of Mars <laughs> Or cool pictures of the moon, and you can't really beat that. So when I went to LPFC for the first time, my original poster design had a beautiful faded-out picture of Mars in the background. And I remember our system admin at the time refusing to print it because it would use too much black ink. That's right. <laughs> uh, I mumbled that under my breath, too, and said these posters are not... <laughs> <laughs> not always possible. And I remember my son was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, never mind. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's where you go to Kinko's and it's the same price no matter how much ink you use. Mm -hmm. And it's actually pretty cheap now because that's what my student wound up doing. So it was only 60 yeah, for, bucks. Yeah, that's that's even cheaper. I was, I was going to say for the 44 by 44 I did last time, I think it was about 80. Yeah. Well, his was a little bit smaller than that. So maybe that's why. But yeah, that's still, that's really cheap. So, oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of posters, there were some, speaking of this, <laughs> uh, that's what I, I kind of went down. There were some really fancy paper posters there. I don't even understand, like super, super thick, almost, it wasn't the fabric posters, but it almost felt like canvas. It was the, the weight on the paper was so high. It was unbelievable. It's like, how much did this thing cost? You got to support all that black ink. 
Exactly. Exactly. There's a couple of cool 3D posters, as always. I think those are almost always there. Um, and then one of the links that was on the LPSC website was to the Planetary Society's How to Make a Scientific Poster. And I did notice that a lot of them looked a lot like those posters. <laughs> Hmm. that were on there but they were really good though because they were very eye-catching it got rid of all that stupid tiny type that you're not going to sit there and read anyway but see i'm kind of torn because i like to go to the posters when the presenters aren't there and read all the stuff so you know i guess it depends on how it works because at lpsc as opposed to other conferences there's only two poster sessions even though it's a week-long conference and the posters are up for like a day and a half so there's plenty of time to go do that, you know. So I don't know. Right. I don't really know how I how I quite feel about it, except for I love pin the crater on the asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we may have to do another another poster show coming up. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of other information out there that the posters were a lot of them were very fun, and I don't remember that being told to me. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> right. It, they were more serious, more text. Right. Uh, whereas now there are more graphics, less text. See, I, I don't like going when there's nobody standing by them because oh, mm-hmm. how many people put a lot of time into the text on their poster? And if there's a ton of text on the poster, it just means they couldn't condense the story well enough. So I would rather go hear the pitch and look at some bullet points than read pages. Yeah, that's true. My my student did bullet points um, because another student in our lab had done that. And I originally was like, no. And then I said, no, that's actually a really good idea. So I quite like that because I err on the side. I am a tactile person. Like I like to write it out. And so I like to read words better than I like to look at figures, which makes me in the minority. I know. So posters are actually really hard for me because of that. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. But was, that's that's personal preference and everybody's different, right? Oh, exa- uh, exactly. But, I mean, also, if you have a poster session, it's you should probably not have just words on it. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, I mean, I've gone back and forth. Some of my first posters had almost no words. Then I had some for a while that had tons of words. And now I like to think that I found the, you know, the Goldilocks balance of words and figures. But... I'm, I'm in gonna 10 years, they'll look different. Exactly. I'm going to send you some of these links and we'll see how you're feeling about your Goldilocks balance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're not constantly improving, you're not doing your job right. So yeah, that is exactly right. Yeah. So it was, very, it was, it was really cool in terms of just looking at that sort of tech. Um, yeah. And obviously there was some free swag. So that was also neat. They had, <gasps> you would love this. There was a group there that had 3D printed portions of impact craters on the moon (laughs) and Hmm. that's cool all right anybody can do that then they turned them into puzzles (laughs) oh neat yeah so they were like little you know eight by four inch puzzles and they had the postcard next to him and then just this jumbled chunk of you know 3d printed and then laser cut puzzle pieces and they're like go for it it was super cool hmm yeah are you writing that down yes <laughs> i knew it because you've got a laser cutter so there you go right oh yeah mm-hmm. it, that was that was super neat they were really cool because i mean you know all right 3d printed moons that's old school but <laughs> yeah so, well, that, that so we had another listener at the show, listener Justin, or we had another listener at the conference, rather, listener Justin, mm-hmm. and uh, he said that he requests an ap- episode on asteroid geology, which mm-hmm. I said, we can definitely do that. But spoiler alert, it'll have to come after the next few episodes, which are on also something that you saw here, impact craters. Exactly. That was my lead in was these 3D puzzles, man. so i can't believe we haven't done a show about impact craters yet we've talked about impact craters but not uh not necessarily how we know if it's an impact crater or some of the more subtle things about impact crater formation and types that's true and so why i thought of this when we were talking about 
not talking about, but when I was thinking of something to bring back that wasn't a conference show, um, is because the first time I went to LPSC many, many, many years ago, I remember it being so divisive in terms of people would say, I think I have this impact crater. And then they would just get crushed. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and like, a, there was seriously a woman started, a, she was going to yell or throw something during her talk. And I went up like two talks after her. I was so scared <laughs> um, because, you know, there are very specific criterion that go into, yes, this is an impact crater or no, it isn't. And while there are these specific criteria, it's also not an exact science, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, so, you know, yeah. th these arguments at conferences do get heated. I mean, nobody likes it when somebody else comes up and craters your theory. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> but it happens. <laughs> it happens a lot. Oh, it, it does. Uh, not only at this conference, but it geochemistry conferences plenty of places mm -hmm. uh, i've seen these debates and that's part of the beauty of the conferences you're not writing back and forth in papers or emails you're there face to face and can try to figure out what's going on really or, or you can just nerd fight it out which was what happened so <laughs> um, <laughs> but i mean this is what i did my master's work on um the paleomagnetic aspect of it will probably be a couple shows down the road but one of the i looked at well, I actually looked at several uh, impact craters in Missouri, and only a couple of them had these ticked boxes of criteria. And so the rest of them, it was actually quite a big question about whether they were also impact craters or whether they were these things called cryptovolcanic structures, which is a really old term in the literature, which just means a round structure that doesn't necessarily have igneous rocks associated with it but they think it formed by volcanic processes because it's a round structure that looks like a volcanic crater. Um, so yeah, so there's actually quite a bit of question and this was, you know, 15 years ago and it's still a big question about some of these structures that I studied. And so I thought, let's tell everyone what these criteria are and why it's such a big deal because in the planetary community, this actually is a really big deal. <laughs> Right. And so you think you might have an impact crater because you found a hole in the earth. Well, that's great, but there are lots of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there are also lots of impact craters in the solar system. Pretty much everything that has a surface with any geologic age, you find impact craters. Right. Exactly. Um, and so we've talked about this a little bit and talked about it in terms of the, the planetary series that we did, too. Um, because, you know, the older the surface, the more cratering you're going to have. All of us, and I, by us, I mean the planets, were subjected to this early heavy bombardment, which happened about 3.9 billion years ago. And it really wrecked the inner rocky planets. Um, and since then, we've cleaned up our neighborhood. And there's not as much junk floating around, right? But we still have impacts, right? We've got this asteroid belt, this failed little bitty planet hanging out, out there. And, um, well, maybe not little bitty, but this failed planet, right? And these little asteroids hit each other all the time, knock each other off course. And then a lot of times they make their way back to us rocky planets and hit. Sometimes they're really small. Sometimes they're big enough to leave an impact crater. Yeah, and you know, you said this isn't uncommon. Just this last week, a large bolide detonated out over the ocean. There uh, you go. You know, with nuclear bomb kind of force. Mm -hmm. uh, picked and, up on infrasound all over. And that's not an uncommon event. Right, and that thing didn't leave an impact crater. Not at all. Never made it to the surface. Yep, so there you go. Um, so a big enough thing that you can hear it everywhere, but not actually make an impact crater. So think about how big a thing you've got to have to actually make an impact crater, right? <laughs> and you said another word that is problematic. We're talking about finding impact craters on Earth and some of the other celestial bodies, um, is that in the ocean, and especially here on Earth with plate tectonics, we don't really have a very old record, right? Because the oldest um, crust that we have in the ocean is Jurassic. So anything pre-Jurassic would have already been subducted and gone by now. 
Yeah, and that's where, well, most of the craters are going to be because it's most of the surface yeah. area of the land, or yeah. most surface area of the, of the planet. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're erasing the record of most of the craters uh, really pretty fast. So we don't know after that uh, heavy bombardment, we don't really know what the background rate of impact was, and we don't have enough data to get a good background rate. Right, exactly. And what you said very importantly is that we're erasing them. Earth's surface processes are out of control, right? <laughs> and so if you get a crater, Earth's processes begin to immediately act on these craters. So erosion, gravity, plants, plants are always in the way. So, you know, it's hard to ID them, especially here on Earth, but we still do. Right. And so how many impact craters do we have that we're pretty sure are impact craters now? If I had to guess this number before I looked it up, well, I've looked it up ages ago, but I never would have thought it was this few. And we only have 190 accepted impact craters on Earth. And that's of all sizes, from tens of meters to vertifort. Which is hundreds of kilometers. Yeah, yeah. It's the biggest It's the biggest one we have. It's super old, a um, couple billion years old. It's in South Africa, and it's about 300 kilometers across. So, yeah, only 190. Does that surprise you? You know, initially I would have said, wow, that's a lot. But then you think about how long we do have these rocks for and the size of the planet and say okay well that's that's not that that is less than one per degree of longitude yeah which is surprising pesky ocean yeah (laughs) but so what goes into this why is this so contentious and i thought that's what we would do over the next couple of episodes is talk about this because a lot of people just sit and look, especially with all the accessible satellite data at, from Google Earth, they just sit and look at these random spots on the Earth that probably no one's ever looked at except for these Google satellites. Not Google satellites, but you know. <laughs> Google does operate satellites now. So. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> and they're like, hey, that looks like an impact crater. So what do you do? If you think you've identified one, you have to start categorizing it. You know, what what made it? What kind of bolide? We say bolide because comets can also make impact craters, right? Because they impact the ground and make a crater. So is it an iron meteorite? Is it a comet? How big is it? What target rock are you impacting? Because that changes the dynamics of the impact, whether you're in igneous rock or sedimentary rock or water (laughs) and very importantly when which will take us a long time to answer that question yeah that's probably the harsh one so yeah it is (laughs) if you're looking for an impact crater through some various you know maybe it's gravity maybe it's magnetics maybe it's just satellite imagery maybe it's some kind of a laser altimetry are, are you just looking for a hole um, no, because Earth likes to, you know, shake itself up. And there are some that are still holes, but you're going to have to be pretty young to just have a hole, right? Because then you're not touched by gravity or any sort of sedimentary infilling or anything like that. Um, so you're really looking for something on that scale that's round. Well, there are lots of round things <laughs> well, inside yeah, there's that lot, imagery. There's lots of holes, too. Um, so when we're talking about this, I sort of call this, we'll go along with the Earth Impact Database, which is an excellent repository for a lot of information from these 190 craters. Um, and these are what they talk about being the megascopic criteria for an impact crater, right? So the more criteria you meet, the better chances that you're thing is going to be accepted as an impact crater. Some of these are really fail safe, or are they? Um, but the first one that is definitely not fail safe is, yeah, it's kind of round because even though there are a couple different types of impact craters, overall, even if it hits obliquely, they're still mostly a round shape to them. Right. You're not going to have a triangular crater. Or maybe you do, and we haven't even figured out what that would look like yet. <laughs> As fun as that would be. So that that sort of makes sense from a physics standpoint, right? You've got something that 
on the scale of the earth can be considered a point source. Right. Exactly. That comes in with a lot of energy. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I said there's there's two different type of craters because there's a couple of different roundness things you want to look for, right? So we'll, we'll throw these out there and define them just because if you're talking about impact craters, you need to know the difference. And so based on size, there are simple, compact, simple impact craters and complex impact craters. And so the simple impact crater is what we were talking about. It's it's like you took a, a melon baller to the surface of the earth, right? <laughs> that is exactly, that's exactly what it looks like. And maybe spilled some out around the rim too. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. sometimes, you know, these, if they're of any age, they are covered up. So you might be using something like gravity to try to find the gravitational low mm -hmm. where that got filled in with sediment. But you're looking for a round bowl-like thing that's easy to model with that shape. Right. Exactly. Um, so complex craters are bigger. I mean, they're also round, but now you definitely have gravity acting on them. And this happens very close after impact. So all those cute little craters, if you're going to draw an impact crater, you know, it's the little melon baller thing, but you can't melon ball at a large scale without having those walls fall down. So immediately gravity begins to act on those steep walls and causes the rim of the crater to collapse. And so that sort of in turn, if you think about a big round area and you're collapsing all that material down, it kind of pushes up the central part of the crater. Um, one of the analogies I read was you got like a racquetball and you stick your finger on it or a rubber ball. And then when you pull your finger off of it, you know, a little part of the ball in the middle of that little blip you just made will like sort of bounce up like an elastic rebound thing. And that is what a complex crater looks like. And so it has what we call peak ring structure. So it's got these sort of different concentric rings. And the bigger they are, you could have a couple different sort of these concentric rings that flow out. And that's just because you've got all this stuff that's falling in because of gravity. Right. And these can be pretty straightforward to see on imagery once you know that you're looking for that. Right. And so <laughs> you're looking for that. <laughs> what, what are you going to see straightforward like that? And if you think about the surface of the earth, what can you see? And one of the big things is you see a radial drainage pattern of little streams and tributaries and stuff like that. Yeah, so you've got a, a peaky thing in the middle. Water is going to come off of it roughly isotropically and then go down into this, well, crater. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but exactly. that also leads to a lake often. But the lakes in these complex structures show up really well. Um, so, oh, I was trying to avoid saying this, but this is the best lake one that comes to mind. Mm, Manicagua? What's that one in Canada? <laughs> Manicagua. Is that no. it? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, it's probably not it. I think I'm conflating that with a mountain somewhere. But there's one in Canada that's hard to pronounce, and it's sort of that structure in between the central peak and the outer rim that is a lake and so you can see this really great like radial lake that fills in those between those two high spots of the outer rim and the inner peak ring structure so that's what people do is they scour all these satellite images and look for these radial drainage patterns and um, that's what one of the impact well I say in quotation marks, impact craters that I worked on in Missouri, um, Wobbleo, is shows up really well as this big, like 13 kilometer diameter radial drainage pattern. So do you put it in quotes because it's not an accepted impact yet? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in my heart it is, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's got to be, but no one's done the, the things that absolutely have to be done or found, which we'll get to. Probably not today. Right. So <laughs> another way, if these are older and they're, they're buried, mm -hmm. this is going to be really obvious in subsurface because this sort of topography on a boundary between where all this material was removed and then later sediment filled in, that's going to show up great 
on seismic that's going to show up great on gravity it might show on magnetics depending on the depth you might be able to see it with ground penetrating radar right yeah exactly and so i've seen examples of all of those things being used to say hey i've got a crater right and the problem always is gravity non-unique solutions right <laughs> true <laughs> you knew i was gonna say it <laughs> I, I i challenge you to show me the unique solution for your cross section but Ooh. <laughs> ouch hmm all right <laughs> so you're exactly right though these radial structures that you would see on the surface in terms of the drainage patterns or the lakes you're going to see that in seismic too um and actually speaking of that oil drilling has revealed a lot of these structures and that was a big thing to do with chicxulub too when we first started characterizing it because it was a great trap yeah i mean you've got uh all of this broken up material that's uh, porous and permeable and then you cover it up. Right, exactly. And these little peak rings are high areas where you can get oil and gas flowing into from the surrounding rocks that you've broken up because of the impact. Um, and those rocks, the breccias, which we'll talk about next time, serve as you know great sources of porosity and permeability. And then if you get these complex craters and you get these peak ring structures, those peaks and the rings associated with them definitely serve as traps. So there's actually uh, one in Oklahoma, the Ames Impact Crater. It's a pretty big one. Um, it was known. It's so great because you can actually take If I did this when I worked in the industry and it was so much fun. So you can figure out the unit that it's producing in, right? So in this case, it was the Hunton, which is a carbonate unit. And you can say, okay, show me Hunton production. Like just light up all these wells in orange that produce from the Hunton. And up in northern Oklahoma, you could see this perfect ring of Hunton wells. And you're like, what is happening there? <laughs> and it's it's outlining the peak ring in the Ames crater. Yeah. <laughs> it's super, <laughs> super neat. And so I actually had one of the last LPSCs I was at. Um, somebody said that they had an impact crater and it was simply based on the fact that oil production from this one unit looked exactly like that peak ring structure that is seen in the Ames crater in Oklahoma. So it's super cool. I mean, it's not diagnostic, obviously. You got to have something else in the Ames crater. They did some scientific coring um, there. And so it's definitely an impact crater. But um, they hadn't gotten that far on this student's su suspected impact. But I just think that's that's really cool because a lot of these people that are working, you know, to look at impact craters probably don't think about oil and gas production being a thing that could actually lead them to a lot of these buried craters that are bound to be out there, right? Yeah. And so the this crater, like you said, it is... It's sort of northwest of Oklahoma City, but not really in the Panhandle. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that area, you know, there there you go. You're you're sitting close to an impact. Oh, that's right. There's actually a little, they have a little spiel about it, too. I've never actually been to this. There's sort of a little kiosk and stuff that talks all about the oil production and then the scientific drilling that, that went along with it. And I know there's all kinds of gravity and magnetic stuff that um, Dr. Ahern did back in the day on the Ames crater. Actually, I think someone has recently uh, sampled it for paleomagnetic analysis, which we'll talk about in a couple of shows later. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked that you haven't taken your undergraduates out there. That is a perfect candidate for a simple PMAG, or not PMAG line, but a gravity line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that processing is Because you know you've got a target that's not a steam tunnel or something like that. Oh, that is a... <laughs> so I'm going to write that down. <laughs> That's actually a great idea. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's been done, but I'm sure they also have never seen it. So, Well, and if, especially if you don't tell them what's there. Uh, that's a pretty funky thing to interpret if you don't know what you're looking at. That's great because, yeah, it depends on how sort of fantastical your mind is because you're like, where's this circular thing? Like, what could it be? It's a hole. How do you get a hole in the earth? Right. Well, especially okay. if you just do one transect, then you're right. like, what is this symmetrical peaky yeah. thing? Yeah, exactly. Because it's like caves aren't going to look that symmetrical. So 
what else could it be? It's, uh, what are they called? Graboids. <laughs> <laughs> Those things from Tremors. <laughs> That's what yeah. they're <laughs> Um, yeah, so so those kind of, that's sort of the megascopic structure of impact crater identification. And as I think everyone has gathered from that, none of these things we talked about right now are those fail-safe criterion that need to be met. <laughs> yeah, so next week we're going to start talking about some of those when we talk about the macroscopic features that we look for. Right, yeah, those are the faux shows well no they're not even that i'll prove them all wrong too it's fine <laughs> yes and then the uh the astute listeners that are ready with their latin prefixes say well you're going from mega to macro then we'll probably go to micro sure will <laughs> and talk about some of the micro scale features and by the end of this uh, i think everybody's going to be thoroughly convinced that it's really hard to tell if this hole is from a space rock or something else equally strange <laughs> That's right. You got to be really tenacious to hold on to to these things for so long, you know. But I mean, it'll get you there somewhere. Nobody believed Wagner either, right? And turns out he was correct about plate tectonics. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that with that, it's probably time to go ahead and move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. So since I'm an undergraduate that doesn't like to do the readings, <laughs> I totally picked out this not a paper that listener Steve sent in, which is this really cool sort of, it goes along with the whole, we talked about the aesthetics of posters a little bit earlier. And this is sort of like a data-driven I don't know, visual, visualization of something that these people took a lot of data points on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would even hesitate to say it's in a paper. It's not peer-reviewed, but scientific papers should be so lucky that they visualize their data as well as this article does. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I knew, I, I figured you loved it. I didn't know if you had looked at it or not yet. Um, and so this is by... Jan Deem and Amber Thomas, and it's we've included uh, the website on here, and it's entitled "Someone Clever Once Said Women Are Not Allowed Pockets," <laughs> and I could join their rant here, and I could even do it for this weekend when I was at this conference and I forgot my bag, my conference bag that I always have with me. I forgot it, and so I had my wallet, which is small, and my phone and my keys. And of course, you know, I'm wearing these dumb pants and the pockets are so tiny because for whatever reason, they want to oppress women's pockets. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. true. The data say so. <laughs> it, it is. And it, it's definitely um, obvious to a lot of people that the pockets, especially the front pockets mm -hmm. of women's uh, pants, jeans or other pants, are tiny like they, they can't even fit a cell phone in a lot of them no and i will say that you're correct like many articles would be so lucky and also for how well written it is uh, it's true so yeah. th they went ahead and said well we have this empirical observation that we think women's pockets are smaller but we need data so they took 20 of the most popular blue jean brands and measured the pockets and from multiple models. So they ended up measuring, buying and measuring 80 pairs of pants. <laughs> I love this. And so they have these great visualizations. Like I said, the writing is so funny. It's so great. Because they're like, sure, we could all carry handbags, but the purse industry is an $8 billion industry. Ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. And they say men's pants pockets are basically the pockets of our dreams. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so all these measurements they took and they just stack the sizes on top of each other, right? It's so cool. Yeah, so you get a bunch of outlines all starting at the same place in the upper left. And then as you keep scrolling, they fade out into the background. So where they're darker, that's where more of them were. 
and it shows you the mean. So this is very similar to what we do when we stack a seismic trace, right? Right. I know. It, yes. <laughs> but this is much more important. <laughs> <laughs> and so... As expected, these women's blue jeans are super tiny. There are some ridiculously tiny ones. And I, the men's pockets also vary, but I don't think they vary as much as the women's ones, just based on this visual, visual. Yeah. So women's jeans were 48% shorter in the pockets and 6.5% narrower. <sighs> Ridiculous. And as they say, um, our measurements confirmed what every woman already knows to be true. Women's pockets are ridiculous. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't stop there with their web witchcraft. Um, To me, I'm sure you already understand all the stuff behind this. (laughs) But they have this great thing. They take those average sizes of the women's and men's front pockets. And then they put the things that you would probably be carrying around with you like a pen a wallet different brands of cell phones and your hand and you can click and drag to see if that thing will actually fit in the pocket yeah and so an iphone 10 100 percent of the men's pockets they measured fit the item completely only 40 percent of women's pockets did <laughs> so ridiculous a front wallet which is what i have i have a men's front wallet so it's real tiny and the same thing the exact same 40 percent of women's pockets 100 percent of men's pockets can fit this item the one that really blew my mind <laughs> is woman's hand 10 percent of women's pockets you can put your hand in oh my god <laughs> i love it so much Uh, And 100%, obviously, of men's pockets can fit both that and a man's hand. Right. Only 5% of uh, women's pockets can fit a man's hand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, so ridiculous. (laughs) And they they take it, keep going further. They've got different uh, outlines. You can look at all the different. So uh, a straight Abercrombie Langdon Slim. (laughs) Um, tells you the price what they're made out of and shows you different objects in them so there's really a lot that went into this including the different styles like a a straight leg or a boot cut and a skinny (laughs) jean and as you expect the skinny jean has smaller pockets right and you can even sort it by price which i thought was a really cool indicator to include too right so if you're paying you know, more than 150 bucks. Are you getting more pocket? Yeah, it looks like it a little bit, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really. Um, I thought that was a really cool way to to look at that, right? Hmm. Well, then here's where it got to the point of really blowing my mind, though. Mm-hmm. Back pockets. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I would I would think that back pockets would be sized the same way. So 40% smaller for a back yep. pocket. Yep. Uh-huh. No, they're almost identical. They're almost identical. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I think it's, well, I don't know. I think women's back pockets look bigger because it makes your butt look smaller. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my thought. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, it said that, you know, men's back pockets were just a bit deeper, um, but were generally the same width as the women's. And so those traces all stack nearly on top of each other. So that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> and there's where it gets really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they talk about that in medieval times, both men and women had pockets that were tied around the waist, hidden underneath their clothing. <laughs> were more now known as a fanny pack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Highly embellished fanny packs, they say. <laughs> right? So um, <laughs> it said women, on the other hand, kept rocking those fanny packs, reported stuffing them with all sorts of useful things. And then it just came became a purse, right? Well, so here's ignoring the the fashion sense of fanny packs for a second because all the fashion stuff's, you know, social construct anyway, right? Right, yeah. Um, Why do we put pockets in every garment? 
it uses more material, it makes the garment more expensive, and you have to change what's in your pockets versus just having the the pockets that you strap on in the morning, right? That's true. Because then you wouldn't ever say, like, oh, you know, my wallet's in my other pants. Yeah, that's really true. But then you got this one more thing to carry. I never well, carry you, a purse. Like, I you, live by my pockets and my jeans. True. But if, like, if your keys were in your waist pockets, I don't know what you would call them. That's not fanny pack. Uh, if your keys were in your fanny pack, you're not going anywhere until you have your fanny pack. Yeah. Joke's on you. I never know where my keys are anyway. <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah this is this is great um yeah it was very interesting and i love the very last it's so great the outcome of the study which would be in the abstract for some of the great journals so what do we want functional pockets when do we want it now but really like several centuries ago <laughs> <laughs> and i enjoyed in the list of things that uh, women were starting to stuff these fanny packs with. Uh, it says, you know, small tooth comb, spectacles, perfume, a box of bonbons, or a bottle of gin. The last two being absolutely essential for having to deal with the state of women's pockets. That's so true. And ladies out there, or whoever, um, the they talk about this in the very beginning. The ever-elusive dress with pockets. <laughs> Right. This is a huge deal. And every one of my friends that ever gets a dress, it's the first thing. They're like, it's got pockets. <laughs> it's a <Yep>. major deal. <laughs> um, and so the there's a great company that makes all these super nerdy, like very Miss Frizzle dresses, and they all have pockets. And that's basically how they sell it. They're like, here's your dress with pockets. We know you're a nerd. Here's all this cool nerd stuff to go on it. It's so right. <laughs> so wonderful. Yeah, this was fantastic, but I thought you would very much appreciate this aesthetic, the aesthetic of these figures. Yeah, the data viz was uh, was great, and you know I'm hoping that they bought these 80 pairs of jeans and sizes they could wear. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, or they just you know eBay them all. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, this is great. They even have so they have a method section. You can download all their data, and they even talk about, you know, how they made the measurements and how they made the measurements on the objects and how they constructed some of the graphics, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. So there you go. You can uh, do some machine learning or <laughs> whatever you mm -hmm. want yeah. on their data or make your own creative data visualization. Uh, uh, the, it's, it's on GitHub. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's fantastic. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for that paper, Steve.